So, five cheery little things to think about every day. But this is the rules of the game. You incarnate in human form, and you're subject to old age, illness, and death. Things that you find dear and delightful are subject to changing and vanishing, and actions have consequences. If you're playing a game, it helps to know the rules. For example, let's say you learn to play chess. Complicated game. This can move like this and that one that way. And you decide you're going to simplify things. You're just going to move your pieces one square at a time, right? Make everything a lot simpler. You won't even move that one that can go in an L shape. Yeah, just leave that, right? So you start moving your pieces one square at a time. And pretty soon your opponent comes zipping across the screen, the board, takes, takes your queen. You get all upset. They say, well, the rules say I can do that. Oh, yeah, right. Never mind. And you go back to moving your pieces one square at a time. Pretty soon you're checkmated. It helps if you play by the rules. The rules of this game are, yeah, old age, sickness, death, things that are dear and delightful, changing and vanishing, and action having consequences. Old age. We live in a culture that's pretty stupid about old age. The dominant message from Western culture about aging is don't get any older than 25. Or if you do, don't look any older than 25. This is incredibly stupid. I mean, in many cultures prior to this culture, the older folks were looked up to as a source of wisdom. Now we've got Twitter to look up to. No, wait, we don't have Twitter anymore. Uh, we've got we've got social media. We've got we've got a lot of information, but where are the sources of wisdom? Ah, okay. One of the advantages to growing older is that you actually learn things along the way and hopefully you can stop doing some of the silly things you used to do that caused you dukkha. There's yeah, some wisdom that comes with aging. But because we're in this culture that says you should never look older than 25, we're getting very mixed messages. If you want to have a happy, healthy old age, you're going to need to embrace it. When you can no longer do something that you used to do, instead of getting upset that you can no longer, I don't know, run a mile in under five minutes, find something else to do besides run. There are other ways to get exercise. Okay. Some of the things that we really like to do when we're younger just simply won't be available. Okay, be flexible. Don't get locked into wishing you could do something you can't do. Instead, find something else that you can do. It's difficult living in an aging body. When Ayakima taught these, she didn't talk about old age, illness, and death. She talked about decay, disease, and death. 
Yeah, our bodies are decaying. If you go look in the mirror after we finish here, that's probably the best you're going to look for the rest of your life. You know, it's just going to go downhill from here. You're going to have to come to terms with it. This is why we bring it up. You know, you don't want to suddenly walk into the bathroom one morning and go, who is this person? You know, it comes on you gradually, sort of. But then suddenly something happens and you decay more than you were expecting. But you still got to deal with it. So, yeah, what's it like to live in an aging body? I love what John Glenn said, the astronaut. He said, old age is a matter of attitude and exercise. I think he nailed it. We definitely got to do the exercise. I read something today that said, if you can't stand on one leg for 10 seconds, you're five times as likely to die as your peers. Now, that's kind of scary. But if you exercise, yeah, you probably can stand on one leg for 10 seconds. Right. So it's important, but it's not going to keep you any younger. It's just that you're not going to wear out as fast. And then, yeah, attitude. And this is what the Buddha was teaching us. I mean, basically, the whole of the Buddha's teaching is about an attitude adjustment. In particular, adjust your attitude away from craving and clinging. Don't crave to be 25 if you're older than 25. Don't cling to your youth do things that you can't do anymore. Yeah, notice the changes. If you can embrace the changes so much, the better. But it's happening and you're going to have to adjust your attitude. Illness. Yeah, nobody likes to be ill. Dis-ease. Yeah, they named it well. It's dis-ease. When you're ill, what is your attitude? I hear people sometimes say they, when they're dying, they want to be able to meditate. But now you got a cold. Oh, you can't meditate. You know, stopped up nose. How could you meditate? Well, I got news for you, people. Dying's going to be a lot worse than a cold. How come you don't go, oh, I'm ill. I can practice meditating under adverse circumstances. This is going to be great for my death process. Now you're watching daytime TV. Hopefully in the UK, you have better daytime TV than we do in the US. And if you're not ill, I mean, do you appreciate your good health? I'm looking at the screen right now. Now, I, I really can't tell all that much, but you know, everybody I see seems to be kind of healthy. That's nice, reasonably healthy. Do you appreciate whatever degree of health you have? It's also subject to anicca. It's impermanent, right? It's going to come and go. And now we're still in a pandemic. I mean, yeah, maybe the politicians are like, well, we got to get the economy going again. Let's take the mask off. But yeah, we're still in a pandemic in this country, the U.S., we're losing 350 to 400 people every day to COVID. And many, many more are getting ill. And about 25% of those 
my age bracket who become ill get long COVID. Yeah, so it's it's a fact of life. And the fact that we are subject to illness would tend to make us want to, you know, do things so that we don't become ill. That's probably a reasonable strategy. If you're going into an indoor crowded place, I assume you're all wearing a mask. Maybe it's not even crowded and you go into a public indoor space. You're taking care of yourself. We recognize that illness is a part of life. And when you're not ill, do you appreciate it? If you're doing these reflections every day and you get to the one about illness, maybe if you're not ill, you can generate some gratitude for your good health instead of taking it for granted. Maybe it'll even inspire you to actually do your exercise and eat a little healthier once you realize that, yeah, this good health I now have is subject to change. Death. That's the scary one. The one certainty we have about the future is we're going to die. I mean, you may think, yeah, when this is over, I'm going to go to sleep, but maybe not. Maybe this asteroid headed straight for you, come right through your ceiling before we finish this thing and kill you. Right? You don't know what the future is going to bring other than at some point you're going to die. And so what do you do with that information? Ignore it to the best of your ability. We want certainty in our lives. We're granted certainty. And guess what? We ignore the one certainty we do get granted. Yeah, I admit it's scary. The process of dying might produce a lot of dukkha. And, yeah, what's it going to be on the other side? Even before I started practice, I was talking with some friends and I said, you know, seems like there's two possibilities. Either when you die, then you get, well, I don't know, you you reconstitute somewhere. You go to heaven or you go to hell or you get reborn here or you get reborn somewhere else. That's one possibility. And the other is nothing. It's, it's just nothing. You're, you're, there is no more. And I th- said, but I think if there is no more, then while you're here, you should... <laughs> You should grab for all the gusto you can. That was from a beer commercial that was popular at the time. You should you should live your life to the fullest. And if there is something, well, everybody who says there's something, even though they don't agree what comes after death, they all agree that the quality of the something that comes next is dependent upon the quality of the life you lead here, particularly on your ethical behavior. So if you lead a full, complete, ethical life, you've taken care of both possibilities, so there's nothing to worry about. Of course, then when I encountered the Buddha, he pointed out, well, as usual, something between the two extremes of continuing and being obliterated, eternalism and nihilism. 
what he pointed out was that, yeah, there's just a bunch of dependently arising processes interacting. That, that's all we find, streams of dependently arising processes interacting. Nobody here, nobody to be obliterated, nobody to be reborn. Just, yeah, dependent origination rolling on. You can find some suttas that talk about this. Take a look at Middle Length Discourse number 38. Take a look at uh, Connected Discourse 1215. Um, I have some talks that are on Dharma Seed that talk about these suttas in some detail if you want to go delve into it more. But the Buddha is pointing to a middle way between annihilation and eternalism. And that's basically to realize this thing you think is me is an illusion. Basically, we got the universe and the universe pokes up an eyeball. You know, and the eyeball's looking around. Actually, there's two eyeballs. They're looking around. It's got little microphones on the side. And it's mobile on the surface of the universe, right? It can move around and see things. It thinks it's separate from the universe. Looks down, sees itself, goes, me! The most important thing in the universe, obviously. We're just a piece of the universe. The universe is going to go on whether this body goes on or not, right? The actions that you do are going to have consequences, and those consequences are going to change how the universe unfolds. We want there to be some solid entity in here that we call me. It can't be found. But we do find this body, and rumor has it it's going to wear out. Well, if you've only got a limited time until it wears out, what are you going to do with that limited time? I don't think there's ever been anybody lying on their deathbed who ever said, I haven't watched enough cat videos. You know, I, mean, I like cat videos. Okay, they're great. But what are you going to do with the limited amount of time you've got? I mean, you could spend the rest of your life watching cat videos. But you might find something more interesting to do. You might find something more beneficial to do. You might find something more loving, more compassionate to do. The best thing about keeping death over your shoulder, as Carlos Castaneda wrote, is that it helps you set priorities. There's a limited amount of time until we die. But you're not dead yet, I can see. All of you have your cameras on. You don't look dead to me, so what are you going to do? This is the best thing about contemplation of death. It helps you set your priorities straight. All that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. When I went on my very first retreat with Ayakema, my very first retreat, she did this guided contemplation. And when she got to this one, my reaction was, no! I mean, I didn't want that. I had dear and delightful things at that time. I had dear and delightful people in my life at that time. And my reaction was, no, I didn't want that to be true. But as she gave us that minute or two to contemplate it, I had to admit 
that those dear and delightful things, those dear and delightful people, even the dear and delightful places were all subject to changing and vanishing. That was 1985. Most of those friends have changed or vanished. Some of those really delightful places have changed and vanished. And the things, the material possessions, yeah, most of them vanished, right? Sometimes I got an upgrade, sometimes I didn't. So what in your life now is dear and delightful? What in your life used to be there that you found dear and delightful that changed and vanished? I don't know. Suppose you had your grandmother's Ming vase sitting on the mantel and there was an earthquake. Oh, you, you guys don't have earthquakes, right? right? We have earthquakes here. So there's an earthquake and it falls off, breaks to pieces. What's your reaction? Oh, a Nietzsche. Or, oh, where's the glue? I'll put it back together. Or, where's the broom and dustpan? When something you find dear and delightful changes and vanishes, how long does it take you to remember Nietzsche? I mean, that may, may not make it a lot easier if you just remember Nietzsche, but it may help a little bit because this is the nature of reality. Reality is really fragile. You, you've probably heard of entropy. Entropy is a tendency for things to go from a state of order to disorder. There's a lot more ways for things to be disorderly than there is orderly. Your grandmother's Ming vase had one way to be orderly and lots of ways to be disorderly. <clears throat> and when the disorderly manifested, yep, time for the garbage. It's definitely good to appreciate the dear and delightful things you have today. This is something you can also do when you're doing this as a contemplation. You don't have to focus on their ending. You can enumerate them, list them, think about them, appreciate them. And also realize that they're here only temporarily. If they're only here temporarily, maybe you don't take them so much for granted. Maybe you can be fully present to the fact that, yeah, dear and delightful things are here. Not just ignore them. And then karma. As I said, the word karma means actions. At the time of the Buddha, spiritual karma, the use of the word, in spiritual circles meant ritual action. If you were a farmer in India and you wanted a good harvest, well, it was obvious you needed to get the gods on your side. So <clears throat> what'd you do? Well, you need to pray to the gods, but you don't know the prayers. But lucky for you, just down the road, there's a temple and the Brahmins there, they know the prayers. And so if you'll just pay them a modest amount, they'll do the chants and prayers for you and you'll get to have a good harvest. That chants and prayers, that was karma. That was the ritual action. Buddha comes along and he says, karma, I declare, O monks, is intention. What is your intention behind each action that you undertake? 
When I first started teaching, every time I encountered a teacher that I admired, I went up to them and said, help, help, I'm starting to teach, give me advice. And several of them mentioned, look very carefully at your intention behind everything you're going to say or do. That was brilliant advice. There were times when I started to say something and I could see that's just for my ego and I didn't say it. <laughs> Turns out to be good advice for life, right? What's your intention behind what you're going to say or do? Pay attention to your intentions. The legal system makes a distinction here. If you intentionally kill someone in my country, they'll kill you. If you accidentally kill someone in my country, well, they might send you to prison if you were doing something stupid like driving drunk or something. Uh, but if it was just an accident, yeah, of course, you'll have to deal with the legal system. Somebody suing you, but um, yeah, we make distinctions here. And so what's really important is your intention. We are actually changed by our intentions. In the U.S., we have gangs, urban gangs. And when somebody joins an urban gang, well, the first thing they make them do is go out and commit a crime. So they'll get used to committing crimes. So they'll be a valuable gang member, right? If you commit one crime, it becomes easier to commit two crimes. If you commit two, yeah, you get the picture, right? It's like that with everything that you do, right? So your mind is being changed. You're being reprogrammed every time you do an intentional action. Hopefully you're reprogramming yourself in a positive direction. So, the results of your action are immediate for you in the sense that it's reprogramming you. It's a small thing usually, right? Sometimes it's big, but it is happening. And then we are born of our karma. This is usually interpreted to mean, oh yeah, in your past life you did a bunch of stuff and that's how come you got born to the family you got born in. But whether you believe in past lives or not, who you are today is a result of lots of previous actions. Okay, um, I'm speaking to you in English. That's because a bunch of Brits came over to North America, ran off the Dutch, ran off the French, ran off the Spanish and suppressed the natives. And so English is spoken in Northern North America where I grew up. And English is spoken where you were living or <laughs> English has become the international language because a bunch of Brits ran all over the world and yeah, you spread English everywhere. Now, I don't think any one of you were on those first ships coming to North America back in the 14, 1500s, right? Don't look that old. But those actions have changed who we are because we are now thinking in English. There's an article in the BBC on, on the website about I think it, I put it up yesterday on, on my Facebook page. It was so interesting about how you think about time is based on the language that you use. So, yeah, these, these past actions of people that invented the English language are structuring how we think today. 
There's the past actions of where you went to school, who your friends were, what movies you've watched, the books you've read, how you encountered the Dharma. All of these things are feeding into you. Those are past actions. Some of them you did. You decided to go to that movie or read that book. Some of them, yeah, just got thrust upon you. But these actions have made you who you are today. We live supported by our actions. How do you get your food? Maybe you work a job. At the job, do they require you to do some actions? I mean, maybe it's not physical lifting or something, but, you know, write a report or something. Yeah, we do actions. They give us money. We can eat. We live supported by our actions. We're related to our actions. At the time of the Buddha, your relatives were the most important thing you had because there was no, you know, social security or anything to take care of you in, in your old age. You needed your relatives around. There was no safety net anywhere. And so what the Buddha is simply saying is that your actions are as important to you as your family. All that I do, whether good or evil, that I will inherit. Yeah, actions have consequences. As you sow, so shall you reap. I mean, this is, this is all over the place. We know this stuff. Now, one of the things that people want to do is use the teachings on karma to balance the books. This guy did something really bad. He needs to have something really bad happen to him. That, yeah, that you can find in the suttas, but I don't think that's what the Buddha was really teaching. He's teaching that actions have consequences. And if we remember the Buddha's teachings on anatta, not self, and we start looking at karma, not from a my action, my result, but from a bigger picture, you start seeing how accurate the Buddha is. One of the, well, somewhat recent horrible actions undertaken on this planet was the invasion of Iraq by a previous American administration. That was a really horrible action. It seems like the guys that perpetrated it got away with it, right? But the world didn't. I mean, 100,000 Iraqis dead, a million Iraqis dead, we have no idea. Millions with PTSD there. The invading forces, many of them dead, many with PTSD. The rise of ISIS, instability in the Middle East. Yeah, it was a really horrible thing to do, and it's had really horrible consequences. The horrible thing happening in Ukraine now, yeah, it's having horrible consequences, right? We want to use karma to balance the books. The books aren't individual. They're kept on a societal basis. We are vastly interconnected. This is what metta practice is about. Metta practice is about acting in harmony with this vast interconnectedness that we experience. Okay, so is the compassion practice and the mudita practice. Right? Recognizing the interconnected nature here. You really want karma to relate to your rebirth? Well, in a sense, you're being reborn 
with every intentional action you do. You're changing your brain a little bit, and your actions are changing the world that you live in. Now, none of us seem to be able to change the world in a big direction, or if any of you are, you've been falling down on the job lately, okay? But we all get to change it slightly. It's like, it's like the unfolding universe is this giant ship, and we all have our hands on the tiller, and we can push it so it goes in a good direction, or we can pull it so it goes in a selfish direction. Okay, what's, what's it going to be? But these actions that we make, they change who we are, and this is our rebirth. You know, I wrote a couple books. Those books will probably be around longer than my physical body will be around. The actions I've done will continue to change the world slightly, even after I'm dead. I suspect all of you have done things that will change the world after your body gives out. So what are you doing today? What actions do you plan to take? Have you checked the intentions behind them? So the Buddha said, these are five things we should think about frequently, and they're often called the five daily recollections. They're found in the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses, and since there are five of them, they're found in Book 5, and they're Sutta 57. And so what I'm going to do in the chat right now is paste a link to the sutta that you can take a look at and open it up for questions, comments. So you can raise your Zoom hand by clicking on uh, reactions. Oh, also the Buddha mentioned that you should not only remember it for yourself, I am of the nature to grow old, sick, ill, and die, but everyone is of the nature to grow old, ill, and die. What anyone finds as dear and delightful is also subject to changing and vanishing, and everyone is the owner of their actions. <laughs> 